Hello, and a warm welcome from me, Jenny Devitt. And me, Terry Bennett. To the first episode for the month of September of the BV Online Podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. But before we continue, we'd all like to extend our deep sympathies to His Majesty the King and the Royal Family for the great loss of a much-loved, admired and respected Queen. We in Dorset and elsewhere will remember Queen Elizabeth II for her inspiring dedication to duty and to country. Many people felt a very personal connection to Her Late Majesty and a deep affection, even if they had never had the privilege to meet her. Such was the affection she inspired that, to many, she was almost like a mother or a grandmother. The words of Angus Campbell, Her Majesty's Lord Lieutenant for Dorset, surely encapsulate our feelings. The country is in deep mourning following the loss of Her Majesty. All our thoughts are with the members of the royal family at this most difficult time. While still a princess, on her 21st birthday, Her Majesty broadcast a declaration to the country and the Commonwealth, which included the words, I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family, to which we all belong. Those words encapsulate the love, service and pure strength of character with which Her Majesty has led the monarchy of Great Britain and the Commonwealth over her extraordinary 70-year reign. It is so special to see the words of a 21-year-old princess so perfectly foreshadowing her long life of dedicated service to us all. We have lost a unique, loving and determined monarch who has, over 70 years, not only delivered the extraordinary devoted service and support she promised at such an early age, but given us so very much more besides. Our loss is incalculable. Rest in peace, Queen Elizabeth II. May your shining example live on. Long live the King. In this first episode, Fanny Charles reveals the £6 million contract with Wessex Internet that will bring the country's first major project gigabit to Dorset. The realities of running a sports ground purely on volunteer assistance. Luke Rake clears up the confusion over the exam system. Author Minette Walters takes on the random 19 questions. And finally, in this first podcast issue of September, Tracy Beardsley gives us flower farmer Charlotte Toombs' story. News. 
North Dorset gets the UK's first major project gigabit contract. Article by Fanny Charles. A £6 million contract signed with North Dorset-based Wessex Internet will bring the government's new project gigabit to 7,000 rural properties across the district over the next three years. Forget superfast or even ultra-fast broadband. The £5 billion project gigabit aims to bring the fastest and most reliable internet connections to hard-to-reach rural areas to enable families and businesses to take full advantage of technological advances in the coming decades. For North Dorset, the contract with Wessex Internet will result in vastly improved connectivity for businesses and individuals outside the market towns and larger villages. The first home will be connected by the end of 2022, with an expected completion date for all by 2025. Wessex Internet was started by James Gibson Fleming, now chairman and founding director. Initially, it was a response to the problems of business people and individuals in the Ewan Valley who were struggling to get reliable broadband. Since then, the company has expanded to serve communities in Dorset, Wiltshire and Somerset and has provided fast broadband to most built-up areas of North Dorset. But it's very expensive to reach people in the remoter, scattered settlements and farms and this is where the support funding from Project Gigabit comes in. It's not just lightning-fast broadband, as Boris Johnson called it, when he came to North Dorset to sign the project's first major contract on one of his last prime ministerial visits. It will also have far-reaching benefits for local businesses and the community, providing employment opportunities and improved skills for local people. Hector Gibson-Fleming, chief executive of Wessex Internet, is justifiably excited about the contract and what it means for the area. We care about our community and we're really proud as a business to be part of this, he says. It will not only bring unlimited speed broadband to the hardest to reach areas, it will also create employment opportunities for businesses and is good news all round for the prosperity of the area. Wessex Internet currently employs 150 people and the new contract will see that figure rise by around 100 over the next 18 months, says Hector, who urges local people to look at recruitment prospects offering skilled jobs across the company. These employment benefits will spread across the district as the improved connectivity allows entrepreneurs, farmers and businesses to expand into old farm buildings and other potential workplaces. The new businesses will mean more and better employment and training for local people. There will be opportunities for people to have high-skilled jobs in North Dorset, says Hector. We're really proud of the difference we're making to our community. The government press release announcing the visit by Boris Johnson and Nadine Dorries, Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport, says gigabit broadband can provide speeds of more than 1,000 megabits per second, more than 30 times faster than copper-based superfast broadband, which is currently available to 97% of UK premises. While superfast is fast enough for most people's needs today, gigabit-capable connections will provide the speeds and reliability Britain needs for decades into the future. Will no one step up to save Wincanton's sports ground? By Rachel Rowe. The Blackmore Vale is full of brilliant voluntary services that keep things running in the community. If you want to be a volunteer, there are endless opportunities to choose from. You can help to clear footpaths, run sports facilities or operate a food pantry. 
But what happens when a voluntary role evolves into a full-time, unpaid task? What if a volunteer wants to do something else with their time? Wincanton Sports Ground is one of several organisations faced with a desperate need for new volunteers and trustees, and it's so urgent that it risks closure in a few weeks' time. Wincanton Town Council Chairman Howard Ellard also chairs the trustees of Wincanton Sports Ground. He says, The Sports Ground works on a volunteer basis and is governed by a charitable trust, the Wincanton Recreational Trust. Like so many local leisure facilities, it is not overseen by the local council. We have four trustees who have been in post for seven years and two wish to stand down. The issue is that two of the volunteers have more or less been doing a full-time job working at the sports ground. They want to do other things with their time. It sucks the life out of volunteers when they don't get any support. So what are the consequences of not having any new volunteers or trustees at the sports ground? Howard explains... The trust cannot operate without trustees. Activities at the sports ground will potentially cease at the end of September. Without volunteers, so many essential jobs just would not get done. At the beginning of October, we will not have anyone to do day-to-day jobs. We have tried to get people to volunteer, but we haven't got very far. When somebody is already doing something, as a volunteer or a trustee, people think, well, I don't have to then. We need people to step up. The sports ground is for the benefit of everyone. Wincanton needs all the sports and leisure facilities it can get. According to data from Public Health, the adult population in South Somerset has high rates of obesity, 60% of adults. Wincanton also has higher rates of high blood pressure and mental ill health than other parts of England. These can all be improved by regular exercise. Sports and leisure facilities are crucial to preventing long-term conditions and ill health. Wincanton Sports Ground is home to the Tennis Club, Wincanton Town Football Club and Wincanton Rugby Club. Popular local cycling club, the Wincanton Wheelers, is also based at the ground, as is a forest school. Naturally, the clubhouse is also booked out for events. Local people walk through the grounds and the complex is well maintained by the volunteers. A spokesperson for Wincanton Town Football Club says, Wincanton Town Football Club has been in existence since 1890 and our men's first team is currently playing at its best standard of football. We've managed to get help from the public to fund urgent drainage works for the pitch, and it's also our first season entering a ladies' team into the Somerset Women's League. Wincanton needs to have its much-loved football teams playing here, and we are entirely run by volunteers. There are various jobs that volunteers or trustees do, ranging from maintaining the grounds to doing the accounts and managing the building. There are also cleaning and serving positions in the main building. All the individual clubs run on their own volunteers too. Howard continues, We have done some incredible things in the last two years, but we need people to come forward to replace the volunteers. The trustees have already looked at other options. They've met with other organisations that have potential to take on the management of the sports ground. And they've also considered selling their surplus land, possibly for development. We do have more land than we need, says Howard. Volunteering is not only an admirable thing to do, it's rewarding and comes with a host of personal benefits. However, when it takes over your life, it can become too much. As a society, we've become dependent on volunteers and their presence can be taken for granted. The work involved in running a charitable trust is also significant. Volunteers step forward to help society, but they also need support and a break from time to time. If you're considering volunteering... Remember that just one hour a month taking on a single task can make a positive difference. 
If you're interested in volunteering at Wincanton Sports Ground, contact Harrod Ellard. That's Harrod underscore Ellard at hotmail.com. It's exam season. What's going on? Are you baffled by the exam system and what those grades actually mean? Kingston Morewood's principal, Luke Rake, has an explanation for all us confused ones. The summer holidays usually mean a quieter time for newspapers, with Parliament in recess and editors scrabbling around during the silly season for things to fill their column inches. Not the BV, of course. But not in this exceptional year, with the Ukraine war, the drought, the energy and cost of living crises, and the Tory leadership battle now over. Thankfully, the annual release of GCSE and A-level results, and a load of other qualifications one never hears of, but more on that later, uh, provides a glorious opportunity to fill space with images of leaping young people and the strong suggestion by many papers, particularly the Telegraph, that the only people who did A-levels were girls. Don't believe me? Just check the coverage to see the innate media bias. The successes of strong A-levels from boys or of students studying for qualifications such as BTEC, BTEC, and City and Guilds of which there are more, simply disappears into the ether. This year was notable for the changes that were required after the teacher-assessed grades during the pandemic and the resulting shift in grade proportions during the process. It also highlighted again the changes in the last few years. What on earth is a grade 8 or a 7 anyway? How does it compare with what we may have done when we were at school? And this year, there were also questions about why the proportions of teenagers getting top marks had gone down. First things first. GCSE grades changed a few years ago to allow for more fairness and accuracy at the top end. The number of students gaining the highest grade was continuing to increase. Why this happens in just a minute. And so the system was changed alongside shifts under then-Secretary of State Michael Gove to remove coursework from large numbers of subjects and move to more traditional end-of-year examinations. Perhaps surprisingly, this more old-fashioned approach to having just examinations coming with its own stresses and strains has actually been shown to be a fairer system for students from lower-income families and thus more suitable to enable social mobility. Interestingly, coursework generally favours more affluent students who have better home and support networks and availability of private study space. This is important as it helps to explain the big shifts during the pandemic. The scoring system for GCSE changed. Any student with a 7 or above has clearly achieved great things. But then, by the same token, so will a student who's struggled with academic study and gets a 4 which is the gateway level at 16. For those of us who are even older, this grade 4 is the same as an O-level C or CSE grade 1. But why were the grades increasing? The usual red-top arguments are that the exams are getting easier. A similarly silly rationale is that students are getting brighter. More sensible views would note that as new examination systems come in, it takes time to really understand how to deliver them, not only for the test, but beginning to prepare students as early as year seven. That's the first year of secondary school. It's also worth noting that the examination bodies are businesses. They operate in a competitive market. So if, for example, one board gets a slightly higher proportion of students who achieve a nine, 
that perhaps provides them with some greater appeal. Schools can, and do, switch boards from time to time. Most importantly, though, the grade boundaries are set by the boards themselves, and this shifts every single year. Thus, the exact same exam score may elicit a different grade in different years. This profiling, or norm referencing, enables the exam boards to control precisely the proportion of students who get a certain grade and prevent wide swings. As such, it's entirely within their control what happens, not the kids. During the lockdown periods of the pandemic, students, including my own children, were unable to sit exams and as such were awarded grades according to school-assessed performance measures. These were then aggregated by the exam boards and then, importantly, normalised by the Department for Education using the now infamous algorithm. This caused a huge surge in top grades and also significantly also favoured the more affluent and independent schools. Is this fair? No. Is it the school's fault? Also, no. This is because the system was hard-baked into a sociological process where students were being assessed on what they'd already done and the confidence of staff on how they may do. There's bias all over this, most of it unconscious. Teachers routinely overestimate student grades and ability, which is why predicted grades are treated with a massive pinch of salt at A-level by the universities. This was particularly noticeable where students came from affluent families, which is why those students have this year proportionately seen the largest reduction in the top grades. Schools cannot improve equality or change the background of their students. They have enough else to do, and they do it brilliantly. As a result, the whole grade system fell down, as the usual processes to manage the proportions of students at each level weren't in play. They needed rebalancing this year through a proportionate shift back, down to nearer 2019 levels of performance. They will almost certainly need one more year of rebalancing, and then we'll return to the usual process where the number of passes and top grades incrementally improves by 0.3% or so every year, until we have another step change in how students are assessed. I'm on the 15th Secretary of State for Education in my career. Another one will be along in a minute. It already is. So it'll always be changing. A final thought for those of you with children, like my own, who sat A-levels or GCSEs this summer. Their grades will undoubtedly be lower than they'd received centre-assessed grades two years ago. Those grades will thus be competing in the work market for jobs in the future. Is this fair? Um, No. It really isn't, and was both completely predictable and entirely avoidable. Gavin Williamson was clearly asleep at the wheel. However, in the long run, it's unlikely to make a permanent difference, although this requires time, to be sure. Grades tend only to be used as staging posts at certain times, and as such, the competition tends to be from the same peer group, getting into uni, for example. If you're over 30, when was the last time someone asked about your exam grades? What's far more important is the range of skills young people develop around the hard grades, and this is what is most important now. Students need to be getting jobs, doing volunteer work, exercising, socialising, and getting as many strings to their bows as possible. Your CV gets you an interview. Your attitude gets you the job. For those of you who got your grades this summer, don't worry, whatever they are. I know plenty of people with top grades and Oxbridge degrees who are far less happy than those without and who work in trades, 
and they're also frequently less financially secure. Yes, you really need to get your maths and English, which is why, if you've not yet got a four, any sixth form or college will make you resit and continue teaching you those subjects. Outside that, though, there's more that matters. There is a world out there beyond the mundane path of GCSE to A-level to university. It's actually the one most people take, whatever the mainstream media likes to tell us. The path you take is something only you can choose. Just enjoy the journey. Features. Author Minette Walters takes on the random 19 questions. Minette Walters' first full-length crime novel, The Ice House, was published in 1992. It took two and a half years to write and was rejected by numerous publishing houses before Macmillan bought it for £1,250. Within four months, it had won the Crime Writers Association John Creasy Award for Best First Novel and had been snapped up by 11 foreign publishers. Minette was the first crime thriller writer to win three major prizes with her first three books. Her second novel, The Sculptress, inspired in part by an encounter Walters had as a volunteer prison visitor, won the Mystery Writers of America Edgar Award. Her third novel, The Skull's Bridal, then won the CWA Gold Dagger, giving her a unique treble. Minette is now published in almost 40 countries and has sold more than 25 million copies of her books worldwide. When Minette discovered the bubonic plague entered England only a few miles from her 18th century Dorset manor, she was intrigued and her curiosity led her to write her first book in a decade. Breaking away from crime writing, The Last Hours was her first historical novel. Set in 14th century Dorset, at the time of the plague, it took several years to research and write, and is as exciting and readable as any of her psychological crime thrillers. Her recent third historical novel, The Swift and the Harrier, is set in 17th century Dorset, and explores the local impact of the English Civil War, with the extra enjoyment of a myriad of familiar places and names for Dorset residents to recognise. In 2019, Minette was appointed a Deputy Lieutenant of Dorset. Question 1. What's your relationship with the Blackmoor Vale? That's the loose North Dorset area, not us. Well, I don't have a strong link with North Dorset specifically. I went to school in Salisbury and grew up visiting my friends' homes across Dorset. I loved it. We were living in Hampshire when our youngest was at school in Sherborne, so we were always driving across and got to know the area very well. And we know Dorset's Lord Lieutenant Angus Campbell and his wife Caroline, so we often pop over to Ewan Minster. But we ended up in West Dorset, almost by accident. Uh, 23 years ago, my mother and my husband, Alex's parents, were all getting rather elderly and lived far from each other and from us. Looking after them was increasingly difficult, so eventually we invited them both to move in with us, and we started the hunt for a good property with extra cottages. We wanted them to remain independent, but to be just a short walk away. We couldn't find anything in Hampshire, but then we happened across Whitcomb here in West Dorset. It's the most magical house, and we've been here ever since. It's Friday night, you have the house to yourself, and no work is allowed. What are you going to do? Oh, I'm going to go to bed early to watch a Denzel Washington movie, especially one directed by Tony Scott. What was the last film you watched? This might be controversial. I love movies. I watch an incredible number and I do watch them over and over again too. But I think it must be The Forever Purge. It's the most recent in the Purge series, 
I have a serious passion for action movies, and this was fantastically violent. It's just full of action, blood and gore. I loved it. A very happy two hours. What is your comfort meal? Oh, it's moule marinière, but it has to be my recipe. Soften the onions in butter, then add the garlic, parsley, white wine, mussels, obviously, but also giant prawns, lobster, cream, and served with homemade bread. My idea of heaven. Who's your celebrity crush? Judge Judy. She is the funniest woman. I love her humour. And she's educational too. I'd love to have dinner with her. Cats or dogs? Dogs. I've always had dogs. I have two golden retrievers at the moment, but I've never been without dogs. My second favourite animals are chickens. We have lots and they're just terrific to simply watch and spend time with. What shop can you not pass without going in? Oh, very few. I hate shopping, although I do find it difficult to pass antique furniture shops. If there's something in the window I like the look of, I'm in. I like Sherbourne Antiques Market, and there's an antiques warehouse in Dorchester, which I love. You never know what you're going to find, so I do potter about in there rather a lot. What would you like to tell the 15-year-old you? It doesn't matter if you don't have a boyfriend. When I was a teenager, I was surrounded by friends who I thought were prettier than me and who had hordes of boys. In desperation, I asked my brother to send me a Valentine card so that I could pretend I had a boyfriend and agreed I'd do the same for him. I carefully signed his card with a question mark and sent it off. And the card I got back was signed, Love, your brother. Not at all helpful. You're just a bag of hormones at that age and worrying about your body image. And of course, none of it matters. You're so young at 15. It always works out OK in the end. I promise. I've been married 44 years now. What's your secret superpower? Knowing what others are thinking, especially my family. I always know it drives them mad. I do have imagination by the bucket, of course, which also helps. I actually can't watch crime dramas with the family. I always spot the clues and solve the mystery far too soon, and then everyone tells me to be quiet as I exclaim, Oh, well, you know exactly what's going to happen. What would you most like to be remembered for? Simply my books, I think. I do genuinely hope they've given as much enjoyment to readers as I've had writing them. What was the last gift you either gave someone or received? The artist Richard Wilkin is a friend of ours. He paints architecture and building interiors, and I asked him to paint the interior of Whitcomb Church. It's still consecrated, but is owned by the Church's Conservation Trust. It's a tiny church, with the Victorian pews all stripped out, so that it's a, a simple open space, exactly as it was designed. The painting is beautiful. It was a gift to my husband, and now it hangs in our hallway. The best flavour of crisps? Pringles. Barbecue-flavoured ones. And the best biscuit for dunking? None. I hate tea and I hate biscuits. Your top three most visited websites? Wikipedia, Google Maps, I'm forever looking up Dorset, Amazon, and no, I'm not ashamed. I buy so many books and through Amazon I can access all the old interesting ones which are no longer in print. I'm always being asked for tips by aspiring historical authors, and my biggest one is to go and read lots of non-fiction from the period. Generally, they're no longer in print, but through Amazon, you can access all the antiquarian bookshops across the country. I get the most exciting parcels arriving. 
all with old, well-thumbed books with notes scribbled in the margins, just picking them up and starting to read. I'm already immersed in history. It's wonderful. Everyone should do it. Chip shop chips or home-baked cake? I don't really like sweet things, so chip shop chips, please. Maybe a little salt and vinegar, but really I prefer them dipped in mayonnaise. Delicious. Tell us about one of the best evenings you've had. As a surprise for our 10th wedding anniversary, Alec booked us a weekend at Berg Island. It's an iconic landmark on its own tidal island off the Devon coast, entirely decorated in the Art Deco style. As well as the main house, there is the beach house, built in the 30s, as a writer's retreat for Agatha Christie, who wrote two novels while there, both set on the island, that's Evil Under the Sun and and then there were none. The dinner the night we arrived was literally unforgettable. The first course was pan-fried goose liver, and it was just melt in the mouth. I'll never forget it. I can still almost taste and feel it in my mouth. That was followed up with duck, I think, and then a delicious orange, chocolate and cream dessert. I even remember we were drinking Rioja. The whole meal was wonderful and the evening was very special. What in life is frankly a mystery to you? Oh, horses. They baffle me. We have a livery yard on our land and there are always horses about. I do like them, but they are a mystery to me. I've never ridden one successfully. I always fall off. I'm happy simply to admire them from afar. Your favourite quote? Oh, it's a Chinese proverb. If you wait by the river long enough, the bodies of your enemies will float by. Isn't it terrific? It's exactly the same thing as revenge is a dish best served cold, but it's far more graphic. Who doesn't want to see the bodies floating by? You have the power to pass one law tomorrow, uncontested. What will you do? Oh, so many things. I think top of my list would be to make it a crime to be anonymous on the internet. If you express an opinion, then you should stand by it. Honestly, the internet is probably the greatest gift to mankind since the wheel. The overwhelming good, the sheer opportunities it brings. Yet people just use it to be hideously abusive. There's a vile element filled with criminals and paedophiles and data hackers think it's their playground. Makes me so angry. A Country Living, Full Bloom in the Flower Business by Tracy Beersley. Tucked away near Sturminster Marshall is Northcombe Flowers, a professional flower farm squeezed into less than an eighth of an acre. Six years ago, this land was bare, save for a few ancient apple trees. For owner Charlotte Toombs, the initial outlay was a £2.50 packet of sweet pea seeds, some back-breaking digging and the foresight to transform her back garden into her business. Now it's a flower-filled landscape for at least ten months of the year. Huge café au lait dahlias a charming mix of subtle cream and dusky pink, and a 2022 bridal favourite, jostle for space with cheerful sunflowers alongside a kaleidoscope of colours from old-fashioned English roses. Achillea, snapdragons, feathery cut-and-come-again cosmos, scented geraniums, nicotiana, feverfew, sweet williams, larkspur, every inch of space is jammed with flowers and herbs. A fruit cage of raspberries droop under the weight of their burgeoning harvest. The fruit will end up in Charlotte's kitchen. The leaves will make ideal foliage in her flower displays. There are no militaristic lines of the same flower on Charlotte's farm. 
The ethos is simply growing a variety of British flowers without the need for pesticides or air miles. Charlotte explains, it's possible to grow flowers in the UK all year round. Even more so now, frost come later. UK growers used to provide all the flowers for the British market. Narcissi would come from the Scilly Isles as early as December and flower trains would come from Cornwall to London, taking precedence over passenger trains. It was only after the war, when the Dutch government threw lots of money at their flower industry, that the UK got left behind. Now we import flowers from huge industrialised farms that use all manner of chemicals. After a career in sales, Charlotte was inspired by a non-profit organisation, Flowers from the Farm, on Instagram. Set up by a farmer's wife looking to diversify, the site encouraged like-minded people to grow British flowers. Charlotte recalls, I was inspired by Georgie Newbury's book, The Flower Farmer's Year. I made notes and poured over seed catalogues. I just did the maths. You can sell a sweet pea stem for £1.25 if you're growing out of season. A package of sweet pea seeds costs £2.50. I literally started my business from that one packet and now have sweet peas in bloom as early as March. When the pandemic hit, Northcombe Flowers was only in its second season. Charlotte says, I was busy. People wanted to send flowers to loved ones and florists couldn't get funeral flowers. At first, I felt guilty about jumping on the bandwagon when the world was gripped in such an awful situation, but it made me realise how much pleasure and solace flowers bring to people. She now harvests eight buckets of flowers every other day. Her natural approach is on trend, appealing to DIY brides wanting a wildflower wedding. The buckets are excellent value. Retail buckets are £75 for approximately 90 stems of mixed flowers and foliage, and a wholesale bucket sells at £55 for 75 stems. Charlotte's sales background shows in her confidence. I can stand by my product. I'm more than happy to walk into a florist and ask them to trial my flowers, she says. As the cold weather sets in, Charlotte's focus turns to dried flowers, a trend enjoying a huge revival, and she's rounding off her flower year with Christmas wreath workshops. On New Year's Day, she sows her first sweet peas, starting the cycle all over again. There's so much pleasure all year, and I never tire of seeing a seedling grow. Quick fire questions with Charlotte. One flower to a desert island? Cosmos. I love the simplicity and feathery foliage. There's nothing prettier than a jug of white purity. Cosmos are also great pollinators. Guilty pleasure? Aimlessly wandering around the garden with a G&T, picking flowers just for myself. And a dinner party A-list? Plants woman Ellen Wilmot, an influential member of the RHS in the 1800s. She used to carry eryngium seeds when she visited friends' gardens, strewing the seeds surreptitiously as she walked among the beds, hence the plant being called Miss Wilmot's Ghost. What a great calling card. Find Charlotte at www northcombe.co.uk And that's all for this first September episode of the BV Online Podcast. Do join us again next week for the next episode. So until then, it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt. And it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett.